Good. Looks good. Looks gorgeous, right. actually. Awesome. We are on track. <laughs> okay. Um, so I will just welcome everyone. Um, and thank you for being here on a kind of, I think it's like gray Friday. And uh, our very last colloquium for the semester. Um, today, we have Valerie Atkinson, a second year PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology here at UH, studying queer, feminist, indigenous, and crip anthropology. Uh, she's using oral history to highlight stories of Kanaka queer kinship and identity. Uh, and she's working to increase accessibility and inclusivity by reimagining the framework of the oral history interview. And her presentation today is titled Tort an Archive of Radical Inclusion, Challenging the Ableist and Exclusionary Oral History Interview from Queer, Feminist, <clears throat> and Indigenous Perspectives. Please join me in welcoming and supporting Valerie. Woo, yeah, 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 yeah. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Hello, everyone. So first, I just want to I want to thank you all for coming um, on this gray day. Um, and I especially want to thank Dr. Saraswati, who has been so kind and encouraging through my incessant emails and Crystal for making this all work and putting that beautiful flyer together. I was I felt I felt very important when I saw that I sent it to everyone I know. I was look, I have a flyer. Look at me. So <laughs> thank you all so much. Um, and since we, you know, did have to start a little late, I'm going to just go ahead and get started and get into it. All right. So in my article, um, toward an archive of radical inclusion, um, challenging the ableist and exclusionary oral history interview from queer feminist and indigenous perspectives, I point to how ableism operates in oral history and propose new ways to reimagine oral history methodology using a feminist, queer, indigenous paradigm to evolve oral history training and interviews into practice, practices that cross new boundaries of radical inclusion. Uh, before I want to get started, I do want to give a little background since my home department is anthropology. Some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, my academic journey is actually a really important aspect of why I came to the work that is foundational to the argument in this article. Um, I began studying anthropology in 2008 when I was at Leeward Community College. It was exciting to me because I felt like this was a discipline that would allow me to do meaningful work with communities to produce positive change. Of course, Along the way, I discovered that um, aspects of anthropology that have and do still cause harm. And as a result of that realization, I've spent a lot of time in other disciplines, both to bring different perspectives to anthropology and to ensure that that foundation of my knowledge is not too narrowly grounded in one discipline. So after spending a little more than two years focused on environmental anthropology at West Oahu, I discovered in my first two weeks in the Masters of Applied Anthropology program here at Manoa that I wanted to do work with and for the LGBTQ plus community here in Hawaii. So this has led me to a master's project which centered oral history and the collection of stories from the LGBTQ members of my wife Kavailihua's family. This journey has shown me that all academic disciplines need to be interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, and even antidisciplinary. It is critical to the success of all departments that we visit other ways of thinking and doing our academic work. Okay, so in that vein, oral history was this discipline that I thought could provide some answers for anthropology. When I first came to oral history, my knowledge of it told me that this was a discipline that was truly inclusive. I learned early on that oral history was created in order to lift the silent voices that have and are still erased by written histories that keep power in the hands of the oppressors by silencing the voices of the oppressed. However, through my own experiences with oral history, I discovered that even this discipline is ableist in method and theory. To be truly inclusive, oral history, like all other disciplines, needs to be radically interdisciplinary. So now as I propose new ways to reimagine the oral history interview, I do wanna stress that this is not a push to erase spoken stories or recorded interviews. Rather, I'm calling for more varied methods and collecting stories that welcome individuals and communities that cannot 
for diverse reasons, provide oral accounts of their stories and structured recorded face-to-face -face interviews. I aim to show that querying, cripping, and indigenizing oral history archives can be subversive, restorative, and also expansive. I do want to, um, before I get started, I want uh, looking at the theoretical paradigm that I'm using, I want to begin with Juliana. Um, I do this because it is where I start for all the work that I have done since coming to UH Benoa and being mentored by Dr. Tingon. When I made the decision to make oral history central to my master's project, I think the thing that I struggled with most is asking myself if I were the right person to do this work. As a non-Indigenous white settler in Hawaii who finds connection with this family and community both as a queer person and as an in-law, I did know that if I were truly going to do applied work or what we now call Kuleana anthropology, I would absolutely need to do it with the community in which I live and learn and I'm a part of. This is when I began to build my knowledge of what Kuleana means, what my Kuleana is, and particularly and most importantly, as I learned throughout this project, um, what it is not. So for me, simply being on this campus means that my kuleana, in the words of Dr. Tingon, demands I acknowledge first the Aina and the Kanaka Uivi who continue to exercise kuleana to stand in the Aloha Aina. Kuleana is something I continue to learn about and use as I move through this current project and as I begin my dissertation work, while also acknowledging that kuleana is so multifaceted that its meaning for how and why we do our work is constantly in flux. Kuleana, before anything else, shapes the way I understand oral history method, and it sits as a guidepost even when I look to other disciplines um, for, or disciplines or perspectives for guidance. I think this is also a good time to mention, um, as a settler, I do acknowledge that the Western queer language I will be using today is problematic in any way, many ways. I use queer because although imperfect, as Dr. Jamaica, Jamaica Osorio says, it makes my work intelligible to those who may need it most. I also acknowledge that not all of the people I discuss today identify as queer. So I make use of the acronym LGBTQ+, because the family members stories I collected all find their identity within that acronym. In my other work, I have also acknowledged Kanaka queer identities when my co-collaborators use them. And when I discuss issues surrounding decolonizing queer language. Okay, so now getting into the oral history interview. I thought it was best to start with Kavai's story uh, because this is where this work of reimagining oral history really began. Looking back, I can kind of see how all of the stories I collected and even the ones I didn't, probably mostly the ones I didn't, um, reveal the ableist and exclusionary practice of the oral history interview. But Kavai's story is a really good place to start. All of the interviews I did, there were three of them, um, they all strayed from the methods of oral history in some way, but Kavai's veered so far off course that my advisor and committee first told me that I would not be able to include hers as an oral history alongside the other two. From the start of the project, she was insistent on putting her interview off as long as possible, which led to my pressing her to finally tell her story as the deadline for my master's project quickly approached. It was literally months. And anyone who's transcribed interviews knows that months is not enough. So keeping Kuliana in mind and acknowledging that as her spouse, I was given access to her story in a very particular way. I struggled with the possibility that she might not want to tell her story. And I really wanted to make sure that she understood completely that she could just simply decline. Um, Kavai lives with social anxiety and bipolar manic depression, and it was these factors, she explained to me, that were holding her back from sitting in a face-to-face -face interview while being recorded. She eventually asked if she could be given the questions so she could type her answers on her own without an interviewer or a tape recorder, and without hesitation, I agreed. And I was completely shocked when she immediately began working on this as soon as I sent her the questions. After poking and prodding her for a little over a year, um, she worked on her oral history for hours a night for several nights. Um, and her typing her story um, also led to her and I having conversations about her life that we hadn't before in the 13 plus years that I knew her. However, 
um, even though she finally felt free to tell her story after submitting my project, I continued to question why this discipline that I understood as fully inclusive that works to build archives of history told by oppressed communities who have always been left out of telling could not hold her story. It didn't make sense to me, particularly because it is in those communities, um, it is those in those communities who often live with invisible mental health that would keep them from a structured interview. So during that, pro that project um, and the semesters following, I was also taking courses in women's gender and sexuality studies, ethnic studies, political science, English, um, and others while also being introduced to more and more black and indigenous scholarship, art and activism, in those disciplines, and even finally, in anthropology. And it was in those places that I saw answers for reimagining oral history. I envisioned an oral history that not only would have allowed Kabai to tell her story in a more expansive way, but that would have also expanded the two other stories I collected and allowed those who couldn't participate to tell their stories as well. Uh, for the sake of time and this presentation, I will be engaging with these different perspectives in, the way, in a way that may seem to place them as separate. However, I wanna stress that only when they are in interaction with each other do they do the work of reimagining the oral history interview. So at the core of all of this, as, as I have stated, is the importance of putting disciplines and perspectives in dialogue with each other. Keeping with the theme of putting indigenous perspectives first, I wanna start here. Um, it is first and foremost important to understand where we are and who we are collecting stories from as the first guidepost for reimagining the oral history interview. Being located in Hawaii and collecting stories from Kanaka meant that Native Hawaiian perspectives needed to be front and center for the Lasano oral history project. Having already created a foundation on Kuliana, I also used the work of Dr. Tingon to create a more informal interview that utilized talk story as a valid interview method. So going into these interviews, thinking about talk story and what that looked like as a method, I had these kind of grand visions of what this oral history was going to look like, mostly because I had spent the previous seven to 10 years talking story and listening to Uncle Jonathan and his drag family talk story every year during the months leading up to the Universal Show pageant. My mistake, however, was in trying to fit talk story into oral history rather than honoring it as a way of telling story in and of itself, which led to interviews that inhibited the ability to talk story in the ways I initially imagined we would. As one example of this, um, Uncle Jonathan's interview did follow most closely to my oral history training, which asked that I create a questionnaire as a guide, research significant moments in history, and create a timeline of social and political events that were happening during his lifetime, that I also allow the story to go where it may while working to achieve a balance between the objectives of the project and the perspectives of the narrator. I knew he was nervous about the interview process. He said so as much to me several times, but I mistakenly thought that we would just naturally fall into talking story even with the interview guides, the documents needing to be signed, the recorder sitting right there on the table in this sort of atmosphere of a recorded face-to-face um, -face interview which as I found during his interview and during others often leads a storyteller to worry about if they're saying the wrong thing, if they're not saying enough, we're not giving the interviewer what they want instead of just simply telling their story. Talking story from Uncle Jonathan is more of an embodied experience. It happens while he's working in his mother's garden, attaching sequence to a crown, taking feathers for a showstopper costume or eating a meal with intentional biological family. So it should have been clear that this wouldn't happen using the format of my oral history training. Engaging with native Hawaiian perspectives means that I leave oral history aside as a subfield to the storytelling this community embodied before colonization brought oral history to these islands. I learned recently through the work of Maori historian Nakia Makuika these other forms of storytelling are not the subfields to oral history as we know it. Oral history is the subfield when it interacts with those ways of telling that aren't met through Western oral history methods. This idea of putting other ways of storytelling first also led me to the realization that this isn't just about being in the territory of another's um, land. 
It's also about being in the territory of another's mental and physical space when the oral history interview restrains the telling from people like Kabai, who can't show up to an interview and interact with another person. For Kabai, storytelling is a quiet practice that decolonization alone will not provide solutions for. So even though decolonization and indigenization provide points of entry for disrupting ableism in oral history, it is important to reach beyond indigenous perspectives and put them into that dialogue with queer and feminist disability studies theory. So in that vein, when I wanted to find work that might have reimagined oral history in ways that would be inclusive of Kabai's method of storytelling, or for even more diverse methods that decenter the oral history interview, I thought queer theory would be the perfect place to look. Through queer theory, I understand queer as not just an identity, but as a verb, as something that moves and makes things move. When I engage in queering anything, I think of Eve Sedgwick's description of queer as an open mesh of possibilities, gaps, overlaps, dissonances and resonances, lapses and excesses of meaning. I think of Bunos who talks about queer's horizon and Somerville who calls queer productively corrosive, which is my absolute favorite and I will always use that one. I also engage with E. Patrick Johnson's Radically Queer, um, which works against the Western queer that is historically located in white, cis, and I would argue able bodies and minds. So with all of this, I saw queer as a way to expand oral history methods that welcome radical possibilities. To me, this is exactly what was needed to question the strict oral history interview methods and open them up to include a story that was typed or told in an even more radical way. To me, Pavai queered oral history. So in my search for queering oral history, I found one text, just the one. I'm not sure if there's more out there since then, but I did find this one that was called The Practice of Queering Oral History or The Practice of Queer Oral History by Boyd and Ramirez. Thinking that this would provide me with something to incorporate by story and others like her, I was surprised to read in the first few pages of this text that for them, oral history is not accomplished if the story is not recorded in the traditional way. And even when these authors challenge the ableist auditory aspect of oral history methods, they still speak to a need for two bodies to be inter in interaction in the same space. And I think that their mistake here is their use of the word queer solely as a noun, centering stories told by queer narrators. While helpful for guiding oral historians who are collecting stories from queer individuals, Using queer theory and queer as a verb would build on their methods of questioning auditory interactions and enable oral historians to imagine an interview where bodies are not always required to show up, where they show up in different ways, or where storytelling happens through movement, expressions, and gestures that involve other embodied ways of storytelling, such as painting, knitting, dancing, carving, and other forms of communicating. Clearing oral history is not about reimagining the oral history interview for those who identify as queer, although it can be. It is about using queer as a concept to work against powers that uphold cis, heteropatriarchal, heteronormative, homonormative, ableist, and colonial methodology that only works to exclude. It is not about telling queer stories. It is about queering storytelling. As a gay woman, Kavai was not inhibited from being interviewed because of being queer, but queer as a perspective, as a theoretical perspective, provides solutions for radical ways of interviewing her as a queer woman who lives with mental health. Again, even as I saw queer as an open mesh of possibilities, I found that it alone was not doing the full job of inclusion. Putting this in dialogue with feminist disability studies, we can find even more room for questioning communication that requires eye contact and two bodies in one space together. So this querying of storytelling leads me to engage the ideas of Claire Hemmings, who declares that we should experiment with how we might tell stories differently, rather than focusing on telling different stories. So here I advance the argument that each interview and each oral history should be met anew and that interview guides and questions should be seen as the proverbial background noise. No two narrators are alike, and no two narrators need the same considerations for the interview process. 
oral history training must include training in feminist perspectives of intersectionality, specifically as they are engaged with, um, within feminist disability studies or FRIT theory. Uh, Sorry, Valerie, I can't, I don't know, your, your voice suddenly went a little bit low. Is there a way to? My dog was lying ah. on my skull. Oh, oh. perfect, perfect. <laughs> down and he's just laying right on top of it. I apologize. <laughs> All right, if that's better, I'll, I'll continue. Sorry about that. So um, feminist disability study scholar, Rosemarie Garland Thompson tells us that dis disability is the most human of experiences, touching every family. And if we live long enough, touching us all. So much can be said what, for what feminist disability studies does for feminist intersectionality theories and highlighting the ways that some identities are completely ignored as being meaningful, which particularly happens with disability, even though it is pre prevalent in every community. Engaging with intersectionality in this way will enab inter enable interviewers to recognize not just the intersection of, of a storyteller's identity, place, time, community, but also the context in which these identities will be situated within the stories being told and how they can be told. I know if this way of thinking had been part of my oral history training, I would have encountered each storyteller in very different ways and collaboration would have been more central in every single part of the process. It was clear that once Kavai was given the opportunity to tell her story, in a way she felt comfortable, there was absolutely zero hesitation to get it out. Had I imagined this option of telling her story differently at the outset of the project, Kavai would have been given a little more than a year rather than the weeks that she was given. She's also an artist, and we have since discussed the possibility of telling her story in ways that don't require words, since Kavai's social anxiety also comes into play when she is writing most especially when she is writing, I would say. Even something as simple as a text message can, can make her really anxious. So the call to type her story while generative was not her perfect solution. If I had this indigenous queer crit paradigm, I would have seen that it wasn't just about talking about mental health in her story. It was about telling her story differently to account for her mental health. So while the oral history associations core principles and best practices touch on diverse identities of storytellers, asking interviewers to consider capturing diverse voices, they do not acknowledge that this diversity of voices may require a diversity of method in a way that I would say is productively subversive. They include the intersections of the identity without understanding the context that will likely shape the way the stories are and can be told. Guidelines that shape each interview as a near replication of the previous reveal the need for oral historians to see each interview as a possibility and not a reproduction. If, as the text and training state, oral histories are a true collaboration, they should be so from conception to interview to transcription and into publication and even beyond that. Feminist historians like oral historians have labored to pursue stories outside of the dominant narratives, striving to insert those omissions into the historical record. Moon Sharonia inspired by Foucault's call to get at the precarious and fragile subject and to listen for something altogether different, developed the idea of subjugated knowledges. For Sharonia, subjugated knowledges refer to the stories of those who have been repressed, disqualified and marginalized by theoretical canons, sometimes even feminist canons. It's the disqualified that is the most useful here in terms of moving beyond the supposedly inclusive practices of oral history. Being excluded, particularly through the oral and oral history due to disability is the very definition of disqualification. So these parallel goals between oral history theory and feminist disability studies theory beg for theory collaboration. I offer other storytelling methods that decenter the ableist oral history interview, and instead center modes that ask the narrator to choose the structure and medium that don't always require an audible voice, a recorder, sight, movement, or even a sound mind. For, for Kavai, the struggle to tell her story came from anxiety and depression. For others, the inability may come out of bodied or minded conditions that are just as silent and invisible, or that are clearly apparent and recognizable. 
For this reason, engaging with crypt theory also means that we acknowledge invisible disability in a way that offers alternatives to all storytellers, since alternative modes of narration may be hidden from view. With all of this in mind, it is clear that the intersections of indigenous, queer, and crip method and theory offer solutions. Now, before I end, I do want to further demonstrate the critical importance of interdisciplinarity in oral history everywhere, really. All disciplines should be interdisciplinary, in my opinion. Um, with just, I just want to do this with one last bit of story, an example from the oral history that I did. So when I compared my own oral history transcriptions to the oral history archives, there was a clear difference. <laughs> Nearly all the stories in the archives revealed this perfect tennis match of question, answer, question, answer, while mine were a lot messier and they kind of revealed indigenous, queer and crip and even straight structure. For Keone, his story flowed like a storybook from beginning to present and to possible future. For Uncle Jonathan, it wasn't linear at all. His stories came from parts of himself that were expressed in different ways at different times of his life. And finally, for Kovai, her story surrounded the people in her life and time felt more like a backdrop to family and self. Um, beyond their actual stories, the time for doing the interviews was also in flux. This is a particular place for the interdisciplinary paradigm of feminist queer crip and indigenous perspectives reveal a specific aspect of oral history that is limiting in method. Traditional oral histories are built on linear, straight, and able time, but this isn't how time works for many storytellers. Kathy Ferguson and Kahala Johnson, among others, trouble colonial time and state time to reveal indigenous ways of being that are disrupted by colonial temporalities. Um, Allison Kafer describes crypt time as flex time, not just expanded, but exploded. Queer theory engages straight time to show how queer people experience pressure from being pushed into timelines of failure when we don't or can't meet expectations of school, career, marriage, children, retirement. It is in the intersections of these disciplines that we can see how oral history methods focus on timelines, major political and social events in time, past, present, and future, beginning, middle, and end. The timing for interviews or the need to show up on time or at all, so many of us experience time in different ways. This difference invites us to imagine unstructuring oral history questions and interviews. Time needs to be exploded in oral history methods so that oral historians can see how time is in flex for each storyteller. These ideas are only possible when we walk through all of these disciplines, visiting how each one can challenge the oral history interview process. So in summary, um, almost three years ago now, uh, the oral history journey I took with the Quisano family produced a written story that I initially accepted as not being an oral history at all. Kavai was given the unique opportunity to ask me if she could write her answers to avoid an interview that would have left her feeling uncomfortable and unable to tell her story, which is somewhat a rare case in that Kavai is my wife. And as such, she felt very comfortable, I would say very comfortable, <laughs> in asking for liberties to be taken. Um, the same opportunity wouldn't hold true for others who simply would either decline to participate or would reluctantly accept the format like Uncle Jonathan given to them, having their story stifled on a mere technicality. So engaging with the concept of Kuleana, if we are centering ethics and the understanding of our relational responsibilities to place, community, family, and self, when we work to collect stories from those who have historically been left out of the telling, we must allow for storytellers who need to process their narratives through different modes. I argue that the oral history interview be reimagined into something that holds all stories. This is critical if we are to bring the activist and liberatory practice of storytelling to all bodies and all minds, giving this power, the movement and reach needed to finally tear down narratives that silence the voices of the many to keep power and control in the hands of the few. An interdisciplinary focus that incorporates the perspectives of indigenous, queer and crip method and theory is what I have argued for here However, I really wanna stress 
the importance of reaching to even more disciplines to capture what might be on the horizon for reimagining the oral history interview. Mahalo. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valerie, for um, sharing your work that is super important um, in that it points out the ableist logic in oral history and aims to decolonize and queer um, oral history. Um, and so right now we'd like to invite everyone here um, uh, to share some encouraging questions and suggestions that could really help Valerie strengthen her paper. Um, so Anyone I'm going to take notes for... while you guys ask questions because I'm still working on this paper and I just want it to be absolutely perfect because it's so important. Absolutely. Thank you. Anybody wants to start first? Chris, Christine, go, go ahead. Hey, Valerie, congratulations. I mean, my gosh, what a journey you've taken. Hi. Um, it's so good to see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering what would have happened if you had turned the tables and you had, and just as an exercise of sorts, you had asked uh, Kavai what would happen if she were to interview you or, or some kind of interchange in which you are being, I don't know, extracted upon, if you want to use that kind of colonial metaphor. That's that's really interesting. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I on, For Kavai, I don't think she would have would have bit the bait on that just because she doesn't like to talk in general. However, I do think that sort of flipping the script in that way is one way that you can queer oral history. It doesn't need to be the person, the interviewer, I guess, asking the questions or even coming up with the questions. I think that was one of the things that I wanted to point here. I went to a talk um, recently, uh, the one I talked about, Nepia Mahuika, who talked about um, coming in not with questions, but with just a simple prop, just knowing them knowing what you wanna talk about without having questions. And I think that would even also open up this sort of talk story rather than coming in and saying, you know, what happened in your childhood when, when this happened? What happened here? Asking these questions over and over again, and just saying for, you know, we wanna talk about your identity as a queer person in the native Hawaiian community and leaving it at that. I think I would say that Keone's interview followed most closely kind of to what you're talking about because um, he was off island. I ended up sending him the questions and he ended up completely ignoring them, which I absolutely am so thankful for because his interview, I think for me is what I, what I would think any oral historian imagines the perfect interview to look like. Um, we sat in this beautiful park. It was a beautiful sunny day. The wind was blowing and the birds were chirping. It was just this thing. And because I sent him the questions ahead of time and because he just ignored them, he sat there for like an hour and 45 minutes and just told me his story. Just the sort of this free flowing story. The only time that it didn't go well was when I tried to interview him during different parts where I tried to insert sort of this oral history training that I had been given. That's when it got awkward or there was weird silences or he was like, oh, let me go back and talk about this because I skipped over some parts, you know? So yeah, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And I think that would be really generative to ask the interviewee, as you will, or the storyteller to ask the interviewer questions. Thank you for that. Thank you, Chris. Anyone else? Anybody from, oh, Kathy, go ahead. Thank you, Valerie. It was such a pleasure to see so much of our intersectional conversations being put to such good use. Um, Your class has been so helpful this semester. You have no, I, you can probably see through what I'm, I'm, I was actually doing this presentation and I thought this is pairing so well with that intersectionally, intersectionality paper that I'm also working on. So thank you for all of that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I have a question, but I missed the first 10 minutes because I couldn't get my, I couldn't, my day's been full of technical failures. Um, Me too. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, you may have t covered this and I didn't 
um, and I and I missed it. So I apologize if that's the case. But I'm curious about how did you come to feel or see, uh, well, or comprehend or notice that the oral history practices you'd been taught weren't serving you well. Where, like, you've taught, I, I understand, I have a good idea of what else you're inventing, but I wonder what provoked you to not be satisfied with what you already had been given in terms of tools and concepts. When I first, so I did the oral history training um, at the um, Oral History Association at Manoa. And when I first did that training, I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is what I need. I'm an amateur interviewer. I don't know what I'm doing. And then, you know, like I said, when I looked at those archives and I saw these perfect interviews, I was like, I must have made a mistake. And I sort of attributed it to my error, basically. I'm not a good interviewer yet. I'm, I'm a rookie. I don't know what I'm doing. And then when Kavai asked if she could type her interview, I didn't even think about it. It didn't even... It didn't even click in my brain that that was going to be an issue. I was just like, well, yeah, I mean, if that's what you want to do. And then when I saw her, like, I mean, that day, that day she was working on it. I didn't even know she was working on it. Um, I was like, okay, this was obviously the right choice. And then as I sort of sat with it for a couple of days, I started to get really nervous. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Am I going to be able to call this an oral history? I mean, this is my whole master's project. Am I going to have to change it? Do I have to, what am I going to do? And this is like in the months leading up to when it's due. I mean, what, what does this mean? So I sent this panicked email to Dr. Tingon, which he gets these very often from me, like Dr. Saraswati does. And I was like, I was like, I don't, I, I told Kavai she could do this without even asking you. I, I don't know what this means for the project. And he was like, we can include her story, but we can't include it as an oral history. And at, and at first I totally accepted that. I was like, oh, okay, well, let's continue on with that. But then again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this more and I'm thinking about Kavai's story alongside Uncle Jonathan's story and Keone's story and to have them not be under the same umbrella as oral history when oral traditions are so central to their lives, you know, and their history. I was like, something's not right with this. Something just doesn't, it feels off to disconnect her story in a way that puts it as different, as separate from, um, especially when oral history is, is supposed to be all inclusive. And that's when I was, I started to think through this idea of, okay, what if, can oral histories not be oral? Can they not include words at all? Can it just be a picture? Can it be, you know, could Kavai make a lay and that's her story? You know, I started to think, okay, and then where can I find this? So obviously the first place I looked was queer because queer theory for me was like, you know, that's where everything gets just blown up. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what, that was the trajectory. At first I accepted all of it as my failure. And then <laughs> I was like, no, 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 wait. Oral history needs to be questioned. If it doesn't include her story, there's a problem there. Thank you, Kathy, do you have a follow-up or? If if I may, yeah, I, I that makes I can totally see that, and uh, um, I wonder if I don't know much about the sort of more uh, orthodox practices of oral history, but I wonder if there's a temp that you talk a lot about. Or you talk in your presentation about different temporalities. Does the convention of the of the practice? assume that there's a beginning that you start at and you move through to the to the end which would be the present or is there is there room or are you the one who's making room for the idea that time doesn't necessarily flow the way that calendars mark it and that people live time in other ways i think there's room i think that the reason the reason why i i am talking about this issue with time is because when I, right before I set out to do these interviews, I did the oral history training and I, I asked, you know, what are the best practices for me to prepare to go into these interviews? And it was all about, okay, 
if you're you're talking with queer people, I you need to look at the major events that were happening during their lifetime. Make a timeline of those events. That's specifically what I was told to do. Make a timeline. Think about um, civil unions. Think about same gender marriage. Think about um, the Glades Review ladies that sort of started it all for drag queens and put those in a timeline and that'll help you sort of guide your interviews when they come off track or maybe it'll give you some questions to ask. Um, and then there was also create a biography of the person. Like I, there was actually a form to give them where they could write the names of different family members. And another thing that we did was we, because we were creating a, a sort of a, a genealogy of sorts, which I, I don't know if I would call it that with the way the form was set up, we also wanted to create sort of an LGBTQ genealogy. Um, and when I, my first interview was Uncle Jonathan. And I went into that interview with this timeline of these major events that happened during his life. I went into that interview with this biography for him to fill out these names and places and things that sort of happened throughout, you know, building a timeline of his life. Um, and, I went in thinking that we were going to create this family tree of LGBTQ plus members and three things happened. The first, um, he didn't connect with any of those events in any way. Anytime I brought them up, he was like, uh, it, it was more of a hesitation to even talk because I wasn't, he wasn't thinking about civil unions. He wasn't thinking about same gender marriage, any of these big queer events that were happening, most of them Western. So, you know, naturally so they didn't really connect with him. Um, it just, it stifled the interview, I think. And it created awkward moments, just like the one with Keone when I tried to guide it. I think when I mentioned it, Glade's review with Keone's interview, my mistake, um, he corrected me that he was not old enough to remember that. So that that was sort of the awkward moments he created. And even when I tried to bring in um, indigenous perspectives to these interviews, because these families, these different family members experience being Native Hawaiian in different ways, the way they were brought up, um, it created really awkward moments. And that's when I sort of started to think about what well, my kuleana is not. Um, and then with the, the creating a sort of a genealogy of family members, he didn't want to do that. He, he was almost seemed frustrated with it, with the prospect. It was like homework to him. He just wanted to tell his story. I mean, he just had these things that he wanted to talk about and he just wanted to tell his story. And here I was saying, oh, what about civil unions and same gender marriage? What about your mom and your dad and their moms and their dads and your, you know, and he was like, no, my life was, his, his whole story was about aspects of himself when he did hula, um, when he was a drag queen, when he became a caretaker for his father, when um, he started creating costumes rather than being in them himself. So I felt like all of these preparations I did that surrounded time, um, they just didn't work. Um, maybe they could in another story. They didn't work with Keone, Kavai, or Uncle Jonathan. I don't know why. Um, so I think that's why I talk about collaboration, sitting down and, you know, maybe doing what Dr. Yana was talking about, you know, having them ask us questions about how they want to do things, what time means to them, how it looks, how their story looks. I don't know if that answered your question. I talked in circles there. See, look, circular. I'm my time's all out of whack too with the pandemic. <laughs> That's sort of where I was coming from. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we have Lani, and then after Lani, I'll, I'll read the questions that Mireille um, posed. Go ahead, thank Lani. Thank you, Valerie. It's good to see Hello. you. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're still in your black orb. Right? <laughs> I, you know, I gotta. <laughs> you are in class. It's hilarious. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure to watch this grow in these different ways. I think it's really exciting. I have just like a, a question about what do you call it? You know what I mean? Because I see the critique of oral history. I see the way, you know, feminist and queer and disability studies can like push it and make it into something else. And you can certainly adapt it for what 
um, you know, the people or the family, your family that you are working with allows for actual research. But why even call it an oral history? You know what I mean? Because I feel like to some degree, you know, and this is why people are interdisciplinary, you know, we get stuck in these modes that were learned and how to do research. And so then we push them and we change them. But in your case, it just seems like, and I think you've identified this as like the construct of our history has held it back. So you're going to push it, but why not call it something else? I mean, in some ways it's like, you're doing a deep ethnography in this family for however long you've been in it. Um, and so, I just wonder what you think about that, like why um, it still maybe matters to you to refer to it as an oral history, or if, you know, as you move forward, dissertation, book, however it goes, if you would be more useful to call it something else or not try to call it anything, you know? This is actually one of the first things that Dr. Saraswati asked me. So when I first started writing this article, right? Great minds think alike. Um, I wanted to call it something different. I wanted to rename it. I was like, let's just tear the whole thing down. You know, like we all try to do as radical as I'm, you just burn it all down and rebuild it. Um, so I was thinking of things, you know, what are, are these storied histories? You know, I was trying to be all deep and introspective about it, but what I realized is, you know, what is the problem with questioning oral history if it's not inclusive? It's not inclusive. You know, and maybe, maybe Kavai, Kavai, Uncle Jonathan and Keone's is something altogether different. But the fact is, is oral history excludes. And if, when, when, most times oral histories are created, they're created around certain events that are happening, you know, like they did the oral histories for um, the hurricane um, and the floods that happened in Kauai. You know, they do oral histories for all these different things. And I started to wonder, okay, so if I was trying to do oral history and it wasn't holding Kavai's story, how many people get approached um, and asked, do you want to be part of this oral history during we're doing for this, you know, big thing that happened and they really have something important to say, or they want to talk or talking for them would be sort of liberatory, but they're just like, uh, I don't want to be interviewed. So I'm just going to say no, or I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to let this interview stifle what I really want to say. So when I thought about that, it's, it sort of made it, 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 it kind of broke my heart a little bit. You know, I thought about my mom. My mom is is um, disabled. And if somebody were doing a story or wanted to do a story about her life or something, she wouldn't be able to show up if they if they if there was an oral history about things in her life, she would just have to decline. And my mom loves to tell stories. She loves to tell stories. So I I think that even though I could call this something different, I could you know, do a deep ethnography, I think it's important that we look at oral history and go, okay, something's wrong here. What can we do to fix it? What can we do to change it in a way that will welcome, you know, all these stories? And if we think about how many stories haven't been captured, oral history's been around for a long time. That's a lot of missing archive. And I just feel like something needs, something needs to be done about that. Um, and that's sort of why I, when I talked to Dr. Saraswati about it, she even said, why are we even calling it something different? Why are we? So Sorry. Maya, uh, you want to mute yourself? <laughs> I think that was an accident. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just sort of how yeah, I've been thinking about it. I just wanted it. to... Um, hear you talk about it and think it's great. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's a great question. That's one thing that everybody always asks me. Why don't we just call it something different or we'll call the whole thing off? But I guess, you know, we can't. So. <laughs> you Thank can you. do both. And like yes. it begins with the, with the criticism and, and, and kind of like leads to what Mira is asking. And she has a note that, um, can you ask in as much as congratulatory note as possible since she deserves it? So, so I don't know how I'm supposed to ask this question with the, you know, kind of like, <laughs> um, congratulatory note. So, um, so Mira wants to ask, um, 
how are you going to build on this project and what future expanded project you dream of? And in what ways has women, gender and sexuality studies helped you as you chart a new territory of scholarship? Okay, so I have huge dreams for this, probably bigger than they need to be. As per usual, you know, we all sort of dream big as academics. We want to change the world, right? Um, I do plan to um, do my dissertation work around oral history, particularly, which as it turns out, um, not everybody knows about this yet. Um, some of my committee members don't even, but <laughs> because we just, it's just something that's recently happened. The oral history for my um, dissertation was going to surround the drag house, House of Rage, Uncle Jonathan's drag house. And because of life and because of pandemic life and things that has happened in his life, he's not going to be able to do that. So, um, however, in talking to my wife about this, she has so much more to say. A lot of really important things to say for this community as someone who's been through a lot as a queer Native Hawaiian woman. So I'm tossing around the idea of doing uh, an oral history just with Kavai. And because she is sort of what led to this whole evolving oral history or thinking about how it's ableist, we have to think about new ways to do it in order to do that for her. Um, and I think she will, Doing that with her, um, her goal is sort of twofold. She wants to talk about these things that she's lived with, that she's dealt with, because she feels like there are so many other um, queer Native Hawaiians out there who experience life the way she has, um, with acceptance and family and all that. But also because she and I both feel that Doing that in a sort of generative way that queers oral history, that crips it, that brings in more indigenous perspectives will be like a roadmap for this um, and will be important in that way. Uh, one thing that I did do that Dr. Tevez knows about because I did it for her class. Thank you so much for that opportunity. I was actually a graduate student in her class and um, we, for her class, the project was to create a zine. and. For graduate students, we had the option to do the zine or write a paper, you know, that went along with our work. And I could have done the more productive thing and written a paper or done something that could have gone with a proposal or something else. But I was like, you know, I need to do a zine because I think a zine is a way to do oral history um, and sort of unstructure oral history in a way that is queer and crip and all these things. So um, Rita was actually in that zine. Rita's here today. Hi, Rita. Um, and she did her oral history through an image that she drew of a tattoo on her back. And um, there was a piece of artwork in the presentation that I gave today that Kavai and I created as sort of another way to talk about mental health. So that's something that I did do and I hope to do more of more things like that, um, more art um, inspired oral history. And then women's gender and sexuality studies, this is where it's at. This is where it all started. Um, I, I love anthropology for what it can do, um, but it's in the classes that I've taken. I think I took my first women's gender and sexuality studies class with Dr. Ferguson. And I was just like, Phew. and it was literally the first women's studies class. I, I mean, in undergrad, I was focused on environmental anthropology. So I was taking like soil sciences and sustainability, sustainable community food systems. I took some political science and I never really was introduced to like bell hooks, you know, like I didn't read that stuff. And I took this class with Dr. Ferguson and I was just like, where has this been all my life? And then I also was lucky enough to come into an anthropology department with people like Dr. Yano and Dr. Brunson and Dr. Tingon, who teach these authors um, that come from those disciplines that aren't necessarily anthropology. And it's in those spaces where I sort of found all this really generative work, like this stuff that just makes you want to like cheer and burn the whole world down and be a feminist killjoy and just love every minute of it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Any one last 
um, or maybe two last questions or comments, great ideas. Anybody? Chris, go ahead. Yeah, Valerie, I was, I, was, I was just trying to think of ways that you could rename it. And you don't have to name anything at all. I mean, you know, I, I, and I agree with that. Um, but sometimes by naming you, it, you create a form that might become generative in itself. And it seemed the, the, to me, the problem with holding on to oral histories is that it's too talk centric and does not make, pay attention perhaps enough to silences. And that it, it says nothing about ethics. I mean, I know that it's founded in a certain amount of ethical procedures, et cetera, et cetera, but it still is, is privileged, right? And that's what you found because it yeah. because it's a system that you tried to impose upon the people you were trying to, you know, that you were um, interacting with didn't fit, didn't fit. So maybe the what you're looking at is a kind of Kuliana-based um, kind of puzzle making or something. I'm just trying to think about, you know, what might what might help because sometimes a label does help. But as soon as it doesn't, then toss it, you know. But then yeah, it's what, what doesn't fit, you know, maybe. Um, but I'm thinking in terms of silences, I'm thinking in terms of interactions, and I'm thinking ways in which Kuliana can insert itself into something called methodology. Yeah, I mean, to create something new, I mean, first of all, how cool would that be? And second of all, I do think that that would be, uh, you know, all the words, subversive, restorative, I think it would be generative, I think it would be huge for these, these storytellers. I think where I'm, where I'm situated right now, and this may change as I move forward, I'm also, you know, I'm, another work that I'm doing, I'm writing a paper for intersectionality for Dr. Ferguson's class that specifically just talks about why oral historians need to be trained in inter feminist intersectionality, specifically disability, feminist disability studies. So right now, I just want to I want to disrupt oral history, I think. I want to make it do what it should be doing, what it should have already been doing, I think. And I think there are people that are doing this too, like Mahuika, you know, the, the book that he wrote, it's all about oral, you know, it's not all about, but there are parts of it. That's where I got this whole idea of oral history as subfield. You know, when you're going into doing an oral history and someone, you know, tells stories through talk story and you try to fit talk story into oral history. No, 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 no. Oral history now is subfield and talk story is, is sort of the main, the main, but I don't know, like right now, I don't know that I want to step out of oral history because I want to, I don't want to say I want to fix it first, but it sounds like I'm, you know, geez, who am I? But you know what I mean? I want to be able to do something for it. Um, that that welcomes more stories, I guess. But yeah, creating something new, that would be great. And maybe what I do with my dissertation work or beyond that, we'll, we'll do something like that. Thank you for that. Thank you. Last call, anybody? You can also just, you know, say how great I am or <laughs> presentation wise. Or <laughs> yeah, Diane, go ahead. I'll say that, Valerie, you did. Super awesome. Oh, thank you. And I've, I've kind of got this thought that's bouncing around in my head about calling it an oral history or renaming it. And my thought here is that, like, as a society, we tend to recognize people with visible disabilities and we move to accommodate and to, uh, and, and nobody's doing that for people with invisible disabilities, with mental health issues, um, with pain issues. Uh, all of these things, and I'm I'm really proud that you are pushing to make room in oral history, make space in that place where people have been shut out. And there might be a place and a time to call it something different, but right now, like you are, you really honoring people that haven't been included in ways that they should have been. And so, I'm super proud that that you are you're pushing to to make that space and honor those people thank you rita and thank you for coming today <laughs> of course i wouldn't miss it diane go ahead um yeah i i was uh, i wanted to congratulate you on your um 
on building this around, you know, I kind of think of it uh, that, that what you've done in this draft of your paper is really talk about inclusive history building and how do we do that and the limits of, of oral histories um, as you've, you know, put down in, in what you had been trained in that method. Um, and so I think that this is a really significant thing. And I don't think it's making oral history to be on a back burner at all, to point out the shortcomings that it has that you've done so well. So um, I, I think that, that, um, that that's excellent and that um, there really is so much room um, for this in inclusiveness. I think that that concept uh, can, can carry you through a very successful dissertation project. One can only hope. <laughs> I will take those encouraging words and keep them with me in the next couple of years. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so if there is nothing else, um, please join me in giving a huge round of applause to Valerie. Yay, 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 yay. And, and happy holidays to everybody. Thank you again, Valerie, for sharing your work. Can't wait to uh, see it in print. Lots of pressure there. Um, but in any case, have a great um, winter break, and I'll see you um, in um, the new year for the new colloquium. So thank, thank you, you everyone, everyone for, uh, for coming. Thank you so much.